Hello and welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365 Sports Car Racing Podcast. I'm Jonathan Grace and I'm joined today by Sports Car 365 Editor-in-Chief John DeGeese. John, how was your weekend? It was a bit cold, but otherwise doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm doing all right, thanks. Yeah, I imagine it's getting properly cold up there in the Midwest. Well, we've got a great show for you today. We'll recap the IMSA season, bring you the news of the week, answer some listener questions, and give you a preview of what's coming up in the world of sports car racing. All that and more on this week's episode of Double Stint. Well, John, let's dive right in. We've recapped the SRO seasons. We've recapped the World Endurance Championship season. Now it's time to look at the WeatherTech Championship. Uh, and, and it was an exciting one. At the end of the DPI era, obviously GTP coming in next year, but it went out with a bang. First question I want to ask you is just kind of what was your highlight of the season? It can either be race of the season or moment of the season. What really stood out to you? I, I looked at three different moments throughout the year. I, I think first off, the the great come come from behind victory for the 01 Chip Ganassi Racing Cadillac at Long Beach with with Sebastian Bourdais and Ranger Van Der Zanda. Um, I, I think there was another defining moment midway through the season at the Salem Six Hours of the Glen um, that really shaped the the GTD title that we'll get to in a little bit. And then also, um, I have to really have really strong memories back looking back at Petit Le Mans with the crazy GTD Pro battle for the win in the closing hours. I think there was four or five cars all dicing it out. Um, that was really spectacular. So I, I those were the three big moments that sort of stood out to me. Um, and and I, I think those there were plenty of others throughout the year as well. Oh, absolutely. I, I think even back to the, the Rolex 24, I think especially in GTD Pro, uh, that excellent battle uh, where Matthew Jaminet came out on top, uh, the two Porsches side by side for what seemed like the last hour of the race. They were really glued together from start to finish. Uh, it was just an, an excellent season all around. The The level of racing was so high, and as we said, a worthy send-off for, for the DPI category. And let's talk about DPI for just a second. I think that, that comeback drive from Bourdais at Long Beach certainly was a highlight uh, and the 01 Cadillac really did look to be the, the favorite Cadillac all season, even on circuits where the Cadillac was not traditionally as strong or the Acuras had more pace. Uh, Bourdais and Van der Zander were always usually there or thereabouts. Yeah, they had some bad luck throughout the year, especially the start of the season. Um, the 02 Cadillac won the 12 hours of Sebring, and that was the only victory that wasn't from the 01 car, the 10 or the 60. And I, I think that says a lot throughout the, the course of the year. Um, Acura won the championship, obviously, with Myra Shank Racing, bookending the season with with the victories at the 24 hours of Daytona and Motul Petit Le Mans. Um, six wins out of 10 races for Acura. So they definitely held the upper hand. And I, I think there could have definitely been more wins for the, the 60 car of of. Uh, uh, the Meyer Shank Racing Acura of Ali Jarvis and Tom Blomquist. Um, they had some really bad luck through the middle of the season with some races being thrown away in the closing stages of the races. Um, obviously, Wayne Taylor Racing picked up on some of those um, potential uh, setbacks from from the Shank crew. They ended up with Ricky Taylor and Philippe Albuquerque ended up with four wins in the season. And it really set up a good showdown to the finish at, at Motul Petit Le Mans that um, didn't end up being as dramatic as what we had hoped for, probably, but um, was still a, a great fight between the two Acuras. I, I think it was a good final send-off, as you said, Jonathan, for the, the DPI era. Obviously, we only had two manufacturers in Acura and Cadillac in the final year. It wasn't as good as with what we had the year before with Mazda, but um, nonetheless, I, I think there was some great racing seen all throughout the season. 
Yeah, there there really was, and I think the the nice thing too about the the season ending at Motul Petit Le Mans, especially with the battle between the two Acuras, was you know the the championship wasn't decided in the first hour. The race really went the distance, and uh, I mean we we could spend a whole episode talking about the DPI drama from from Petit Le Mans, but going into the race, we knew that one of the Acuras was going to come out on top. It was just a matter of who. Uh, but either way, a, a great season for the sixty crew, uh, and, and uh, some news on on the Wayne Taylor car that we'll actually get to later in the show. So stay tuned for that. Um, but with that, let's move on to talking about LMP2. It was Tower Motorsports who came out on top. Pier 1 gave them a run for their money. There's some great racing throughout the category, really from the beginning of the year onwards, but Tower Motorsport came out on top, and John Ferrano was the sole champion. Yeah, um, unfortunately, Louis Delatraz missed a race. Um, it was the Mid-Ohio round that clashed with a, a European Le Mans series event that ultimately made uh, John a solo champion in the in the Tower Motorsport Orica um, it was a strange dynamic in LMP2 because, as you said, it was PR1 Matheson that was sort of fighting with the tower car, but they had two different sets of drivers throughout the year. Um, ben Keating, Mikkel Jensen, and Scott Huffaker were the Endurance Cup drivers, and they actually ended up winning the Michelin Endurance Cup title in LMP2, but um, there was a different set of drivers for the the sprint races um, spearheaded by Patrick Kelly and um, Josh Pearson. So it, it, it added a pretty interesting dynamic because the 52 car um, and ended up going into the final race with the chance of winning the team's championship, the season long team's championship. But Ferrano's car ended up winning Motul Petit Lama in, in LMP2 and 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 sewed up the, the titles there. Um you know, I, I think LMP2 had some really great fights over throughout the year, and and it was um, certainly an interesting class to 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 follow. Um, twenty twenty three is shaping up to be even better, I think, with the, uh, even more full season entries. And um, even though it's still playing out to be just an Orica only class, I I, I think um, the strength of the teams and and drivers that we're we're seeing and the continued mandate of a bronze driver in each lineup, I, I think, really makes this an exciting class to watch oh, it certainly does it, as you said it was an exciting season right from the word go and, and next season shaping up to be great as well and we'll talk about that more later in the show too uh let, let's touch on lmp3 for a moment colin brown and john bennett the two champions there for core autosport obviously we know that core has has shut its doors but a, a worthy send-off Obviously, Colin Brown advancing in his career and stepping away and Core shutting its doors in response, but it was a fairly dominant and controlled season from Core Autosport. Yeah, this was the core that we had seen through all those years of, of their dominance in the LMPC ranks and then running the, the factory Porsche North America operation in IMSA for, I think, six seasons. The, this was the, the storybook end to the team's career you know and we didn't know it at the time i remember asking john bennett in the post-race press conference are, are you planning to come back in 23 and he said yeah we're, we're all all every, everything's all set to go and um when we got the news that, that colin was offered to drive with Meyer shank that's sort of what changed everything for this team they had actually already tested at daytona um they had planned to, to return with their lmp3 Liger with colin and john as the full season drivers and ultimately um john decided to close up the team um, knowing that colin was in a really good position to to continue his career and make the step up to be a, a factory-backed um driver in, in the in the lmdh ranks the gtp class of the weathertech sports car championship so um it was interesting to sort of see that dynamic play uh, un unfold during the offseason, 
but um, really great to see Core sort of end their chapter of their career in, 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 in racing on such a high note with, with winning the LMP3 title for the first time. Absolutely. A worthy send-off for a great team and a great group of people. Uh, let, let's touch on GTD Pro. When we talk about dominant seasons, it doesn't really get much more dominant than this. Matthew Chaminet and Matt Campbell uh, with FAF Motorsport just came out swinging and, and didn't stop. That plaid Porsche looked so strong from start to finish uh, and produced some amazing battles, some really excellent stints throughout the season. FAF certainly made it exciting this season. Yeah, as you mentioned, it started right from the beginning at Daytona with the big victory there. And then um, they they saw victory lane four additional times on the season, um, completing the, I, I think, a really dominant run by by the duo of the, the two Matts, Matthew Gemini and Matt, Matt Campbell. They're obviously going on to 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 drive in with the Porsche Penske Motorsport next year in the WeatherTech Championship. And um, they really set the mark in the GTD Pro class this year. Um Really, it was hard to sort of they they were just pretty much in a league of their own, I would have to say, in terms of the season. Um, Corvette Racing won the Mobile One 12 Hours of Sebring, but that was their only victory uh, on the year. Heart of Racing broke through for a couple wins. Um, we saw Vaster Sullivan end the season with two wins in the last three races. But um, it was really a controlling effort by the Canadian team, which which claimed its second consecutive WeatherTech Championship title after taking the GTD Class Championship the year before with Lawrence Vanthor and Zachary Robichon. Um, the next year, they're obviously going to have different uh, uh, co-drivers again, with, with as I said, with Gemini and Campbell moving on. But um, it, there's not much more to be really said in the first year of the GTD Pro Class other than what a dominant controlling effort by the FAF Porsche. Yeah, they, they certainly are going into next season in, in 2023 with a, a bit of a target on their backs as, as the ones to beat, but a, a quality problem for a great team. They uh, produce an excellent season, so we're excited to see what they do uh, starting at Daytona next month. And in GTD, let's touch on that for just a second. Roman DeAngelis was the champion for Heart of Racing, uh, and this was a bit of a crazy season as well. I think back to Watkins Glen, uh, when with all the drive time clarifications, it was a double win for them, uh, but it was an excellent season for the Aston Martin crew, and, and Roman DeAngelis produced a, a great season as well. Yeah, a really deserving run by the Heart of Racing and, and Roman uh, teaming with Maxime Martin for the majority of the season. But um, Max uh, was in the GTD Pro car for some of the early season Endurance Cup races, and that's why he did not share the title with the Canadian Rising Star. Um, I, I have to look back at, at what could have been for Windward Racing. Um, uh, touching back to that race at the Six Hours of the Glen, Philip Ellis had crossed the line and first um, was uh, looked to be their first career victory in GTD, uh, except it ended up being where Ellis was 56 seconds under the minimum drive time that was adjusted due to a red flag there for lightning in the area. Um, if they had taken that win and DeAngelis was second, I think it would have shifted the the points tables a little bit differently at the end of the season. Again, coulda, shoulda, woulda, you know, ultimately the rules are rules. And and we know the Watkins Glen race ended up in a bit of controversy in, in terms of the drive time requirements. And IMSA has clarified that and adjusted a little bit on the rules for 2023 to make sure we don't get a repeat of what happened when uh, I think nine cars or was it 10 cars that ended up not, um, 
meeting the adjusted minimum drive time there at that race. But um, nonetheless, still a big championship win for the heart of racing. Um, they're they're coming back next year with a, a slightly different driver lineup with Maxime Martin moving on um, to becoming a BMW factory driver, doing some racing in Europe next year. But um, Roman's going to be joined by Marco Sorensen, which is a, a, a great um, lineup that's going to take another dynamic, I think, to the GTD title fight in 2023. But um, certainly, I, I think we saw some great battles in, throughout the year. Um uh, right Motorsports took victory at the Rolex 24. They ended up finishing runner-up in the championship. Um, who can remember Setelar Racing actually winning the 12 hours of Sebring with their Ferrari. Um, Paul Miller breaking through at Long Beach for the first victory with the BMW in, in M4 GT3 in IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship competition. Um, we had other other wins by um, Turner Motorsport, Vassar Sullivan. Uh, Windward finally got a, a race win on merit uh, officially at Road America. Then they went back to back at VIR with a, uh, another crazy finish in, in, in that class. And then Gradient Racing broke through at Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta at Motul Petit Lama for the first long distance endurance win for the Acura NSX. So um, lots of storylines in, in GTD. And I, I think it was uh, another really great season for that class as well. The top three teams, Harder Racing, Wright, and, and Korthoff, all separated by less than 40 points. Uh, and, you know, even with the, the IMSA point system, it's it's very, very close. Uh, I think it just gives you an indication of how competitive this class was the whole season, how close the racing was. Absolutely. So overall, John, I know we mentioned kind of a moment of the season. What was the race of the season for you overall? Well, that's a really tough one because you look back at Daytona and and rightfully so. I I, I think the battle between the FAF and the KCMG Porsches was right up there. Um, we saw Motul Petit Lama come down to the wire. Um, Watkins Glen had the controversy with with the the drive time situations. I I, I can't really say one in particular. I I think we all they were all really good in in their own right. Um, wh- what about you, Jonathan? It, it's tough. I'm right there with you. I'm I'm kind of torn between the 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 bookends of the season. Daytona was was excellent. It was a great fight or plenty of great fights all the way through. Uh, I I think it, I would maybe have to give the edge to to Motul Petit Lama, uh, just because of all the drama and craziness that happened and uh you know just the fact that so many championships were to be decided in the final round there was just so much on the line uh, and i think the racing matched the the uh the occasion it was certainly an, an exciting event um really no dull points throughout the 10-hour event so i think for me it has to be petit lamar yeah that was definitely a deserving race for sure as always, you can catch all the racing action from every week in Dan Lloyd's weekly racing roundup over on sportscar365.com. Well, John, let's dive into talking about some of the news of the week, and let's start uh, by talking about the Rolex 24 at Daytona. IMSA has confirmed a 60-car entry list for the Rolex 24 to start the IMSA season. Nine GTP cars in the introduction of that class, where we'll see the LMDH cars wheel-to-wheel for the first time. Ten LMP2 cars, nine LMP3 cars, eight GTD pros, and 24 GTDs. Uh, This is having the makings of, of a really, really excellent battle. One fewer car than last year for safety reasons, but either way, it's going to be a packed house. Yeah, um, I, I have to tip 
the hat to IMSA for for how they selected this group. Um, it, it certainly wasn't easy. Um, we know in previous episodes we talked about the oversubscribed field. We believe there were 72 entry requests, and um, they needed to narrow it down to 60. 56 of the entry requests have actually all came for from either full season or Michelin Endurance Cup uh, teams. Um, 45 of them are full season actually right now, which just says a lot to the strength of the championship. Um, it means that only four cars that were Daytona only got into the race. Um, we know uh, a few of them, including T the TGM, um, Aston Martin, um, that's actually going to race in GTD pro, which came as a surprise to the entry list. Um, also, uh, uh, we had the second, uh, the, the third, uh, Cadillac, um, the, LMDH car, the uh, run under the Chip Ganassi Racing banner, that's only going to be doing Daytona as well. Um, so certainly, I, I, I think there were a lot of teams that were left on the sidelines from this. Um, we had the KCMG Acura that was going to race in GTD Pro, Racing Team Turkey's LMP2 entry, Sun Energy One Racing in GTD, ST Racing in GTD, among others. And they've all been placed on a reserve list for the race. So We'll have to wait and see if anybody ends up withdrawing. I, I sort of find that to be highly unlikely at this time, considering the proximity of the race and, and everything that's sort of shaping up to be in all of the five classes of, of competition. But um, I, I think overall, the, the, this field is extremely strong. You, you just have to look at all of the entries that are taking part in, in the race. And, um, you know, there's a plenty of storylines beyond even even the GTP class, we have the uh, race debuts for the Ferrari 296 GT3, the Porsche 911 GT3R making its North American debut, and also the Lamborghini Huracan GT3 Evo, uh, Evo 2, um, that'll be fielded in GTD Pro by Iron Lynx and a bunch of other teams in GTD. So, um, yeah, where do we start? I, I, I think there's a lot of, of, of great stories here, and, and it's going to be shaping up to be an excellent race in, in just a few weeks. Yeah, where where do we start? Indeed, I I think you you know we could go on for for hours about all of the storylines here that have just come out already. I mean, definitely, I would encourage you listening to to go to the website on Sportsquip three sixty five because there's just been so many stories about uh, you know, who's driving, the lineups, the entries, uh, and, and it's all covered in in much greater detail there. So I'd encourage you to check that out and and stay tuned because there will certainly be more coming. Uh, but yeah, new teams, new cars, new drivers, new faces, uh, and some familiar ones too. So it's going to be exciting for sure. But we're we're glad to have the entry list and at least know who's coming to the party. Porsche Penske Motorsport has set their 2023 LMDH driver pairings for both the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship season and the FIA World Endurance Championship season. In IMSA, in the number six card will be Nick Tandy and Matthew Jaminet, joined by Dane Cameron for Daytona, uh, and then Matt Campbell and Felipe Nazar team up in the number seven car with Michael Christensen for Daytona. We believe that Cameron and Christensen may continue to do the other endurance races as well. Yeah, that, that seems to be the case right now, although during Porsche's Night of Champions uh, award ceremony, they only confirmed him for the Rolex 24. Um, this is an interesting driver combination. I, I think we all knew that Matt, the two Mats would be in the WeatherTech Championship, and then um, it, it makes a lot of sense for Felipe Nasser, a, a former series DPI champion, to be there as well. And we know how much um, uh, Nick Tandy loves U.S. racing. So it, the lineup um, 
it, it it makes a lot of sense, like I said. But the the point being is that the the two mats have been split up with Jaminet teaming up with Nick Nick Tandy and then Campbell in with Nasser in the number seven car. And um, like what we'll get to in just a minute about the WEC lineups, the 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 longstanding Porsche pairings. Are, are no longer i i think uh, there hasn't been a reason why but we believe it's the sort of build the team spirit and and to sort of um not have the continuity from the gt racing programs so um it'll be interesting to see how it how it unfolds but um certainly strong lineups in in both of the cars for the full season in imsa Absolutely. I think with the WeatherTech Championship, too, it's tough because obviously it would have been cool to keep Matthew Jaminet and Matt Campbell together, uh, and, and we know how strong they are as teammates, but I think Tandy and Jaminet is incredibly strong, and, and Campbell and Nazar is incredibly strong. It's it's pretty balanced everywhere you look, so uh, I think it'll be really, really exciting to watch. And in WEC, it'll be the number five car of Dane Cameron, Michael Christensen, and Fred Makowecki. And in the sixth car, Kevin Estra, Andre Lauderer, and Lawrence Vantor. Uh, again, a ton of talent, a ton of GT talent. Previous prototype experience as well. Uh, again, as you said, John, a really interesting lineup that kind of breaks up some familiar pairings. But we're excited to see how this all plays out. Yeah, I, I think... The strategy really banks on having some drivers with prototype experience already under their belt. Um, Dane Cameron, obviously a a uh, longtime IMSA champion, I think three or four four championships under his belt, including um, titles in the DPI ranks and prototype ranks. So um, having him sort of lead the effort, not necessarily leading, but but still being in with Michael Christensen and, and Fred Makovecki, um says a lot there. And then Estra, Lauderer, and Vantor, which is going to be very strong as well in the number six car. Um, this obviously splits up the Christensen Estra pairing that have been so dominant and and so strong in the in the GTE Pro ranks through the years of the WEC. But just like what we saw in IMSA, I, I think this sort of um, opens up some new doors and and builds some new chemistry between the drivers. So um, can't wait to see how this unfolds. Um, these will be the lineups for the 24 hours of Loma as well in in uh, the Porsche Penske roster. We're not going to be seeing a third or fourth car entered for that race. So um, unfortunately, that means that the IMSA full season pairings will not be part of that lineup for the, the French Endurance Classic. But um, nonetheless, I, I think that there's definitely possibilities for an additional car in year two of the program in 2024. Absolutely. You know, that's a good point, John, is like this is just the first year of the Golden Era. We may see more of that crossover from a lineups perspective for some of these teams like Porsche Penske uh, or BMW or Cadillac that are are running in both IMSA and the World Endurance Championship. Uh, that'll be interesting to see, too, not only the cars crossing over, but the drivers, too, uh, and, and how that could work. That would be very exciting. So we'll have to keep you posted on that. But for now, the lineups are set. Chip Ganassi Racing is set to establish a German headquarters for its World Endurance Championship campaign, the dual program uh, with two cars in IMSA and a single car in WEC, pending a second entry potentially for Le Mans. I think it's pending approval at the moment, but setting up shop in Germany, it makes a lot of sense for uh, a team running a dual program. Uh, Porsche Penske has done a similar thing, and it makes a lot of sense that Chip Ganassi Racing would do something like this too. Yeah, I had a good chat with Mike O'Gara, the the team's director of operations globally for Chip Ganassi Racing. Now he's actually overseen all of the team's programs, both in in IMSA, WEC, IndyCar, uh, Extreme E. So he's a busy guy right now. And um, 
he was actually in Germany last week um, looking at some shop spaces and um, working with their new team manager, Stephen Midas. Um, that, that name rings a bell. Um, he was a, a performance engineer with uh, the factory Porsche LMP1 program in the WEC. So um, he has a lot of experience with WEC. He's helping sort of build the German team around. It's a U.S. team, let's be clear, but um, they're going to be based in Germany. They're going to have some German employees, um, some other people from Europe, the U.S., um, some of those crew will be flying in to, for the WEC races next year with the single car program um, that'll be running full time in the WEC with the Cadillac V LMDH. So um, great to see uh, a strategy sort of taken in house for Chip Ganassi Racing. Um, when we saw them last in WEC full time, that was a Multimatic run program based out of the UK. Um, they don't they didn't have that kind of uh, partnership for this kind of program. So. They're um, creating their own team uh, for the WEC. And, and like you said, Jonathan, it's very similar to what Porsche Penske has under, undertaken with their um, base in Mannheim, Germany. Um, and and I, I think it makes a lot of sense to have uh, a headquarters in Europe instead of having to work out of a, out of a container or, or share shop, shop space with an existing team. So I, I think this shows this how serious this um, Cadillac Chip Ganassi racing program will be in the WEC next year. Mark Whitman and Philip Eng are pretty upbeat about BMW's testing progress. They said they're happy with the BMW M Team RLL's progress after the test at Daytona, John, that you were at. Uh, and they seem undeterred by some of the issues that they had suffered at Sebring, which forced them to cut uh, a longer endurance test short. Um, and, and, John, I'm actually very curious to, to hear uh, what you have to say about this, too, because obviously uh, the two drivers are happy. The team seems happy. Andreas Roos saying there's still a long way to go. But from your perspective, how did the BMW look at the test? Well, we only saw one BMW for the majority of the test because they were still building up the second one in the paddock. Um, that was the same case for the second Chip Ganassi uh, Cadillac as well during the two-day IMSA sanctioned test at Daytona a couple of weeks ago. Um, I would say the BMW looked okay. Um, I, I would still rate the, the, the Cadillac and, and Porsche a little bit higher in terms of the, the amount of mileage they've completed. Um, BMW really lost a lot of time and, and mileage in the early running of their car when they ran into a lot of different issues um, in European testing. And then they had to abort the test at Sebring that was planned to be a 24-hour run uh, uh, about a month and a half ago. So I would say they're still on the back foot. Um, drivers always like to be optimistic, I think, when it comes to um, looking into the start of the season and and everything. And and speaking to Maurizio Lasciuta, the program uh, director for the LMDH side of things from BMW, he admitted they still have a very tall order to 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 go in order to get this program you know fully prepared and, and ready for daytona they'll be there no doubt about it and and they're going to be burning the midnight oil through the through the holiday weeks here but um i i think that um they're not not in a, they're certainly not in a position where they had hoped to be at this point nobody really is so um you just sort of have to be optimistic and hope everything works out at this stage with only a few weeks to go before the Rolex 24. Yeah, it really does make these these final few weeks of testing 
fairly critical, uh, especially if everybody's just trying to dial these things in. Reliability, as you mentioned, uh, when we talked about the Daytona test more at length in a previous episode, that's it's really going to be one of the main concerns here is just getting to the checkered flag. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see. And, and speaking of reliability and testing, Ferrari has attempted its first major endurance test for the new 499P hypercar. Uh, they're planning another one after they had some unspecified issues, but reliability related, we think, uh, during an outing at Aragon. Uh, we understand that they didn't completely abort the test, but it didn't compete the full 24-hour regime uh, like it was intended to. Yeah, um, this was sort of a setback for Ferrari as well, although they have more time before their debut race because that'll be coming in the WEC season opener at Sebring in March. Um, let's wait and see again. I, I think Ferrari's not in a not in that bad of a shape. Um, they've been out testing with two cars, um, the, their two factory cars alongside each other. We, we we don't know the exact mileage they've completed yet so far. Um, as you said, Jonathan, they had to sort of uh, change their their testing program at Motorland Aragon um, recently after trying to go for a 24-hour continuous test. They ran into some issues there. Now um, Ferrari's planning a second endurance test before the 1,000 miles of Sebring, which will open up the WEC season. So, um, yeah, this just sort of shows that everybody is really – running to the ragged edge, I, th- I think, in terms of trying to get mileage under their belts. And and things are always going to go wrong with brand new cars. So um, while Porsche and, and Cadillac may have been a little bit more lucky in their endurance outings, um, we, we have manufacturers like Ferrari and, and BMW that have run into issues. And then others like, like Acura that haven't even attempted a 24-hour endurance test, um, knowing the time limitations that were up against the clock. So um, we'll have to wait and see on, on how things develop, but um, I would say Ferrari is in a little better of a position just because they have a couple extra months to go before they start their season in the WEC. Well, if you're a car collector, you may want to get your checkbook out. Honda Performance Development has put the Wayne Taylor Racing ARX 05 DPI car up for sale on Bring a Trailer. John, as we understand, it's the first of its kind, the DPI car with the Honda engine in the back. The current bid stands at $388,000. Rest assured, it will likely be a lot higher than that. This was a successful car this season, four race wins and second in the championship. John, certainly a unique offering. Yeah, it is because they're actually selling it with the engine as well. And this is something that HPD had sort of shied away from in previous generations of cars, um, both in LMP2 and the early uh, DPI era. So um, I-, I think this is going to make for a very interesting collector's item, if not maybe a track day car in HSR or something. Um, I'm sure the number is going to, the, the price is going to go well north of where it is right now, um, probably nearing close to a million dollars. That That'd be my guess right now. We'll certainly have to keep you posted on that one. It's it's going to be interesting to follow. John Doonan has said that a return to the Daytona qualifying race format is, quote, an absolute consideration. Uh, and the reason for the departure from that format back to a traditional qualifying for this year's Rolex 24 was around sensitivity to supply chain issues. Wheeland continues as the primary Action Express racing sponsor, having first paired up in 2017. The engineering company and Action Express maintain their partnership, and that will be displayed and reflected on the number 31 Wheeland Engineering Cadillac V LMDH. Together, the team has produced eight wins in IMSA, along with the team's and drivers' championship. Oliver Jarvis will join Aero Motorsports for next month's Rolex 24. The reigning IMSA DPI champion will pilot the team's LMP2 entry alongside full-season drivers Ryan Dial and Dwight Merriman and Endurance Cup driver Christian Rasmussen. 
Aero Motorsport has an impressive track record at Daytona and is seeking its second win at the Florida Endurance Race in three years. Kelly Moss and Riley Motorsports have teamed up in IMSA for a GTD campaign. Kelly Moss Racing has been a mainstay in the Porsche Career Cup North America presented by Cayman Island Series, and they're joining forces with Riley Motorsports to field a pair of Type 992 Porsche 911 GT3Rs, Porsche's newest iteration of their successful GT3 car. The number 92 entry will be in the Michelin Endurance Cup and will feature Jerome Bligamullen, Alec Udell, Andrew Davis, and David Brulee, and we're waiting on the confirmation of the drivers for the second entry. As always, you can read all about the headlines we've covered on today's show and more over on sportscar365.com. Well, John, let's move on to answering some listener questions, and we've got some really good ones in here. The first comes in the comments section of our previous episode from Sam L. He asks, with the release of the Daytona entry list, do you think any other races will need to limit entries as well? I can think of potential problems with 50-plus confirmed Endurance Cup cars at Road Atlanta. Also, will any regular season races be impacted with 45-car entries? Yeah, it's a really good question, and I don't think we're going to have any significant issues other than maybe Motul Petit Lama if all of the teams stay around for the season. Generally, there is some drop-off um, that, that, that happens over the course of the year. The only other race I could think of is um, um, WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca. That's actually going to be a, a four-class race with GTP, LMP2, GTD Pro, and GTD. So subtract the LMP3 cars um, that would still be putting it right at the limit for that track. Um, we'll have to wait and see. That's a question I'm definitely going to ask when we get to Daytona in a few short weeks uh, to John Doonan and, and, and see where they're at with that. Uh, Mid-Ohio was another track traditionally that was sort of tight on pit lane space, but obviously um, we're not returning to Mid-Ohio in 23. That's been replaced by Indianapolis, which will be an all-class race alongside Road America. Um, those are the two only all-class races for um, the WeatherTech championship outside of the endurance cup rounds which have capacity for uh, the majority of the teams indianapolis and road america are two tracks that have a lot of capacity as well so i'm not expecting issues there so i think the only one that could potentially be a problem would be laguna seca but let's wait and see um, how that unfolds for for that event in next may our next question, also in the comment section of the previous episode, is from Gregory Tolson. Gregory asks, any idea why Corvette elected to go for one car at the Rolex 24 instead of their typical two? Last year, they had two entries along with their WEC efforts. Do you think Le Mans next year will only have one Corvette in GTE Am as well? And this is an interesting one, John. Obviously, in, in WEC, there's more of a change in format for Corvette, but not so much in IMSA. Obviously, the, the GT3 car coming in is, is a change in and of itself. Could that maybe have anything to do with this? Well, it's an interesting one because I asked Laura Wontrop Clauser about this um, a few weeks ago, I think in, during the Bahrain um, season finale. And she said it's certainly only their plan to have one at Daytona, one at Loma, one for the WEC season, one for the IMSA season. And she sort of, um, said it was all down to car availability. Now we know Corvette, I don't think has sold any other C8Rs. They still have, I think, at least four race cars in their arsenal. Um, they did have two cars at Le Mans this year. They did have two cars at Daytona, and those were the only races, I believe, they were ran as a two-car team. She really didn't give me a clear answer on why they're going down to one car for those races, but I would have to think it, it, it could be sort of 
trying to save a little bit budget when when where you can, um, especially as a lot of the attention is going to be placed on the new GT3 car that'll be debuting in 2024. Um, so if I had a guess, I think it would probably be a budget situation. Um, and 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 trying to focus all of their efforts around the single car campaigns for the full seasons in the two championships. And we had a final question on Twitter from Dr. Joey Bananas under the hashtag AskDoubleStint. He asks, Asian Le Mans Series has tapped into something with the destination season in the Gulf. Any chance it would expand and, and stand firm at a sixth round season in Kuwait or Saudi? And John, I'm curious to hear your input on this. Yeah, I spoke with Stefan Rattel about this um, during the Golf 12-hour weekend. And you have to remember, SRO is now a joint co-owner in the operation of the Asian Le Mans series with the ACO. This was announced uh, almost a year ago, I think, in, in Bahrain um, during the World Endurance Championship season finale in 2021. And um, Stefan indicated that it's their plan, it's their hope to return to Southeast Asia in 2023. Um, they still don't have definitive plans for that yet, but I think what we will see is more of a transitional period where we would see a couple rounds in the Middle East, then a couple rounds in in the Southeast Asia, and then maybe going completely back to Southeast Asia in 2024. I, I don't get the sense that there's going to be a long-term commitment for the Middle East. I know we have a record grid for Asian Lama in February, I think 48 cars. Um, that's a, a very, very impressive field, but um, it's certainly the plan of the ACO and SRO to um, eventually have the, the championship return fully to Southeast Asia, potentially maybe going back to Australia. That would be really cool to see. So um, let's, let's wait and see what how this all develops i know china opening back up um with some of their covid restrictions most of their covid restrictions gone um does help motorsports in china for sure and um maybe this is something we can see back on the calendar in in 2023 but in 2024 that is sorry i'm getting my years mixed up because the season starts so early in the year um, it's hard to keep track of things, but 2023, it's certainly confirmed as four rounds in the UAE only between Yas Marina circuit closing out the season and then Dubai Autodrome opening up the season the weekend within a two week compact format. Um, so maybe 2024 could be the year where they go back to Southeast Asia for uh, splitting it up with some races in the Middle East and Southeast Asia. And then maybe 2025 would be the year that they get back fully to Southeast Asia. I think that's the idea right now that the two organizations are having. As always, we really appreciate you writing in your questions, and we love answering them on the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on Double Stint, be sure to post it in the comment section below this episode, or take to Twitter and post your question using the hashtag AskDoubleStint, and we'll put our heads together to answer it in an upcoming episode. Because it's the end of the racing season, there's no on-track action next week, but stay tuned to sportscar365.com as we've got some fun and exciting end-of-the-year content for you that you don't want to miss. That's it for us this week and this year on the podcast. If you have the time, we'd greatly appreciate a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. It really helps out the show. We want to take a moment to say a huge thank you for joining us wherever you've been tuning in from all year long. We love putting out these episodes each week and interacting with you in the questions, and we can't wait to get it going again in the new year. But for the final time this year, for John DeGeese, I'm Jonathan Grace. We'll see you right back here in two weeks' time for next year's edition of Double Stint. <laughs>